Have you noticed how particularly rotten people can actually kill a first name indefinitely? Just because they're, they're, just, they're so nasty, no one ever wants to be this name, the same thing. When's the last time you met an Adolf? I have. It used to be a very fo- common name. Now if you met one, you'd be like, what? Are you, what? Why didn't you change it to Dolph so it would sound like you were named after action star Dolph Lundgren? Why don't you do anything? Go by your middle name. That'd be weird. Or, you know, that one's kind of fresh still. There are many older than that. I don't know if Genghis and Attila would be popular names, but for those guys. But I'll tell you what, the name Benedict is basically dead in America. And you can go online and you can search and there are these databases that show you graphs of the use of different names when they were popular, when they kind of fell out of favor. And you would think in America, a predominantly Christian nation, many Anglican people, kind of founded by people in the Church of England, many Roman Catholic people that with a name like Benedict, that great saint of the 6th century, that great monastic, that many people would want that name but it's been more or less unheard of. Of course, because the name Benedict, because of Benedict Arnold, is synonymous with betrayal and treachery. And when you look at that that graph, there's just basically nothing. And then there's a little spike. In 1914, there was Pope Benedict XV was elected, and, and he was very active in trying to broker peace when all of Europe was falling into war and the world war was was coming about and and then it falls away and I mean it tripled so that 0.008% of of boys were named Benedict then it, it's basically nothing again and then in the Audis uh, when Pope Benedict the 16th was elected there's a little bump but not much we've yet to see what effect Benedict Cumberbatch will have on all of this uh, the data's not out yet but but the thing is He's British, so of course he can be named Benedict. From their point of view, Benedict Arnold wasn't a traitor at all, but from our point of view, oh, the worst, because he wasn't an insignificant foot soldier who switched sides. He was up there. He had the trust of the leaders. He was high up, and it still stings centuries later. The same thing would be true of St. Paul, who we say, oh yeah, St. Paul, but for those who had sent him on his way off to Damascus, as a leader of their cause, to go and persecute the church and hopefully do away once and for all with this error that was this this group, this sect that was growing within their ranks, for him to flip and align himself, not just to abandon the cause, but to join the enemy, would have been unthinkable. And in this passage, we see when his former allies first see him preaching the gospel, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in that moment. Because Saul's eyes, from our point of view, had been opened. Like when Jesus on the road to Emmaus had talked to the two disciples, and then their eyes were kept from seeing him, but when he picked up the bread and blessed it and broke it, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So Saul's eyes were opened to the truth, literally and spiritually. The scales fell off and he could see physically once again, and he could see spiritually that Jesus, whom he had been persecuting, is Lord. And everything changed. He had been filled with hate, right? It says he was breathing threats and murder. Every breath, the very breath in him was murder and anger. And now he's filled instead with the Holy Spirit. And of course, the word spirit in both the Hebrew and the Greek of the Old Testament and the New, it can also be translated breath 
or spirit. The old breath, the murder, oh, I'm angry, is gone. And now he has peace. He has the spirits. He understands God's love. He understands grace. He's coming to understand all of these things. And he will champion them with the very life that he lives from this moment on. What's fascinating to me, though, is that it tells us that Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Or some translations say several days. Not a very long time. Seemingly long enough before the next thing happens, long enough for them to see that he's the real deal, that he's not, this isn't a ploy, he's not faking it to, to gain their trust. He has been convicted of sin. God encountered him. Jesus knocked him down. His, his eyes were open. His will was freed from the bondage of sin. And now he is indeed one of them, a follower of Jesus Christ. And they see that he is zealous, but now zealous for the cause of the cross. They, they see that he, after he'd been fasting and bedridden when Ananias found him, he's like, give me a sandwich. He gets up. Let's do it. Let's go to work. He's, he's ready to do the ministry of the word. He's rearing to go. Now, some people, as they've read this passage, have said, oh, weird, because Paul will later counsel that those who would become overseers or elders must not be recent converts. Otherwise, they'll fall into the temptation of the devil. Now, recognize, first of all, he hadn't written that yet. And he's very immature in his faith at this point. He's just started to understand these things and grow. But even if we were to accept that, I want to point out a few details here. First of all, he's not an elder. He, he is submitting to and learning from the church in Damascus, even as he goes and speaks in the synagogue. He isn't suddenly, boom, the leader. And we'll see in a minute that some time passes, more time than it seems actually passes in this passage. Secondly, he was a bit of a unique character because Paul was incredibly well-trained in the scriptures. He'd, he'd learned the scriptures inside and out under Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was someone who knew the Bible. And I imagine these things came together pretty quickly for him. As what the Holy Spirit revealed to him, and what the disciples in Damascus taught him clicked together with what he knew from a lifetime, from boyhood, of, of studying the scriptures under some of the most capable teachers in all of Israel. Thirdly, Paul does take time for preparation. He doesn't launch right from here into his worldwide missionary tours his missionary journeys that we follow in that last book of the Bible called Maps. No, we see that he takes time, and if you go over to Galatians 1, you're going to see that there is actually three years that passes here at about verse 23. That's basically how long it takes someone, if they're able to go to seminary full-time and they don't have to work, those people, that's about how long it takes to get a seminary degree. Like, he's out in Arabia learning, learning from the Spirit. There's like a practicum or an internship. He's preaching and teaching, clearly, we will see, before his worldwide mission begins. But it's only a few short days between his conversion and his first preaching the gospel in a synagogue. In fact, in verse 20, it tells us, Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, plural, saying, He is the Son of God. Immediately. That's one of Mark's favorite words when you read the Gospel of Mark. Without, without any wait, at once, immediately, preaching the Gospel. 
He doesn't wait before he can personally testify to what God has done. He, he can't wait. He doesn't say, I, I, I'm going to just take some time for me. No, no, no. He says, I, I, I can't keep it locked up in my bones any longer. I'm going to explode. i got speaking engagements at these synagogues. I'm going to keep them. I'm just going to change the content up a little bit. And I, it's interesting to me that many people today, what holds them back from proclaiming the gospel is this sense of, well, first I've got some groundwork to lay. Before I can do that, I've got to get some buy-in. I've got to kind of earn my position speaking about God. I've got to hang out with people long enough where they see I'm authentic and I'm real and I, I, oh, oops, I sinned. Okay, now I've got to start over again. All right, so now I'm going to be really good, and after a while they're going to see that this is really serious this time, and oh, oh, I just said something really mean to one of the people I wanted to witness to. Okay, starting over again, and this can go on for years. Paul, he doesn't have time for that. They know what he was like. He was coming there to kill them, and yet the Christians, when they embrace him, seem to endorse his going to speak. Paul was unworthy, and if he felt unworthy, that's good, because it's God who makes us worthy. Speaking of his own life in 1 Timothy 1, he says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. He doesn't get tripped up with the fact that he's unworthy and and that he's unequipped at the moment and he needs to earn his place in the church first. No, this is fresh and he's feeling zealous and he's not going to waste that. And so off he goes to the synagogues. And notice he doesn't share his testimony, although it's probably the, the best testimony I've ever heard. I've heard some doozies, but the one where you get knocked to the ground and you see the light and you hear the voices and your eyes are are covered with scales and they slough off, but he knows that the powerful thing, the thing that brought him back from spiritual death to life is the gospel. Later on, he will share his testimony a couple of times, but to proclaim Christ in the synagogues, that's what did it for him, and that's what will bring others into the church, into everlasting life. And yet at the same time, his very presence is, is in its essence, a testimony. You don't have a choice in many cases whether you're going to wait or not before you begin to testify to or witness to the gospel. My, my mentor in college, Dr. Edward Pikey, he used to tell me, how he got saved when he was a young man. He was working at Fisher Body. He was part of a group of guys. He was known as kind of the wild one. He had the foulest mouth. He was the one who was always down to do whatever. He was out drinking and partying and all this stuff all the time. One night he got saved, and the next morning he went to work, and he knew they were going to notice because God had taken that foul mouth from him. And he knew they, were, they would look at him, and just like the crowd in the synagogue said, is this not Paul who was raising havoc? Is this not Paul who was trying to destroy the church? They said, is this not Ed? Is this not Ed who used to go into a bar and sailors would come running out? Is this not Ed who used to say the name of Jesus Christ frequently, but not like this, now telling us that Jesus got a hold of his life? Isn't this the guy that used to get drunk with us? Isn't this the guy who used to say he, he didn't care what happened after he died and he didn't care about God and he didn't care about all of it? And that testimony 
even though he hadn't taken time to prove how authentic he was, that testimony had power as he proclaimed the gospel. I know some of your stories and how you came to faith. And some of you came out of a similar backgrounds. And if you would have said, you know, I'm going to call up a pastor, somebody like Zach, and say, will you come and talk to my friends and tell them the same gospel that I heard? Your friends would have said, look at this guy. I mean, could I be anything but a pastor? I got a pastor-shaped head. They say, yeah, of course he's going to talk about Jesus. But if you tell them about Jesus, is this not the guy who used to get high with us? Is this not the lady who used to mock the scriptures? What's going on here? Something's happened, something big. And no, you're not going to be perfect, not in your new conversion, not in your 20 years a Christian, 30 years a Christian, 40 years a We're never perfect. But if we wait for that, that's the enemy's way of kicking the can down the road and down the road and down the road. We'll deal with it later. It's like the national debt. Someday... Just kick the can down the road. Maybe at some point I'll look at my life and go, now, now I'm good enough to be a witness for Jesus. You're not called to bear witness to your own perfect life, but to Jesus. In fact, the very fact that a broken vessel like you or me or Paul can even proclaim the gospel illustrates what's so beautiful about it. I know a guy named Joe Thorne who he got saved out of also a kind of rough background and, and not, not violence and stuff, but, but just a lot of really hard living. And, and he, in his testimony, talks about how he was so zealous and he would be talking to people about Jesus, all his friends, everybody, his neighbors, everybody would talk about Jesus. And he would say things like, God is so bleepity bleepity great. Because God doesn't always do what he did with Pikey and tame your tongue in a moment. Sometimes it's a struggle for a lifetime. And he looks back at that and says, oh, that was terrible. And in a sense it was, but God used it. People still came to faith because he was willing and because he was faithful and passionate about the gospel, about what had saved him. Another thing that often holds people back is they say, you know, I'd like to tell people about Jesus, but... I don't want to make any waves that might in turn rock any boats. I don't want to make trouble. I certainly don't want to get in trouble. And we now live in an age, I mean, it used to be probably if you spent time at work even or at school sharing the gospel, you'd be lauded for that. Teachers and professors and employers would say, all right, good, good to have a good solid Christian on the team. Who knows what might happen to you now? That's, that's kicking a hornet's nest. Well, Paul knew better than anyone the trouble that the gospel might bring him because he was very recently the trouble himself. Right? He's like Walter White. I am the one who knocks and then drags you back to Jerusalem in chains. He knows that there is a cost. There is a price that will have to be paid. He's already been informed, even in his conversion and calling, that he will suffer for Jesus and yet he's all in, all the same. Jesus' call to follow him is a call to pick up our cross and follow him. It's interesting when you look at the different accounts of Saul's conversion, how they highlight different details of it, much like how the different Gospels highlight different details of the events of Jesus' life. In the one that we saw here in this chapter, it tells us that Jesus said, uh, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul responded with, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
rise and go, and he gives him all the instructions right then. Later on in, verse, or in chapter 22, when he relates the same thing, he adds the detail that he asked, what must I do? What should I do, God? At which point he's given the instructions of rising and going into the city and all of this sort of thing. So there's two questions here. Who are you, Lord? And what should I do? We were in our Sunday school class as we studied the catechism, looking at that first question, who is the Lord? Who is God? We've been looking at that for weeks now. We still haven't completely answered it somehow. But you've got to ask that question first. Before you say, what must I do? What should I do? In fact, that's worldly religion in a nutshell. Is just, all right, what do I do? Tell me the minimum, I'll do it, I'll be in. When I die, I'm all set. And you can run around like a chicken sands ahead, doing all sorts of stuff, even doing all sorts of good, without ever truly knowing God. If you don't first have that encounter, like Saul, in which you know him, not just about him, but relationally, you know God. You have that, that answer, I am Jesus, whom you've been persecuting. I died for you. I rose again. What must I do? And this is what Saul does here as he preaches. He first answers the question before he tells them, you've got to repent, you've got to believe, you've got to turn. He tells them who this Jesus is. As he preaches in the synagogues, he says he is the Son of God. Just recently, in our Advent readings, saw this highlighted in Luke 1. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This is the sort of thing that had filled Paul with rage. And now he proclaims it. He also proves from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? The Christ, the same is the word Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew or Mashiach. Christ or Christos is Greek. They both mean the anointed one. As Saul, over those three days, sat and thought and processed and fasted and prayed, he must have thought, who's an anointed one? What does that mean? Who's anointed in the scriptures? He would know. Prophets were anointed and commissioned. Priests were anointed for their work. Kings were anointed with oil. Jesus fulfills all three of those offices. He is the great and final prophet. Hebrews 1, he brings God's presence and God's word into our midst to the point of being the word made flesh. The prophet brings God's revelation to us. Brings God to us in a sense. Jesus does that ultimately. He's the great high priest bringing us to God, bringing us into God's presence acceptable because we have been covered with the blood of the great sacrifice, which is himself, the lamb, the Passover lamb without blemish. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course, he is the king, the king who rules over the people whose kingdom will have no end. As we sing in that hymn at Christmas time, over us all to reign. In fact, I've read that Perhaps some think the three gifts brought to him represent the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And, and Paul knew this was the same sort of thing Peter had been preaching. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Christ. And he says he's, he's the Son of God and the Christ, the Messiah. 
And these two claims are exactly what ultimately led to Jesus being condemned to death. In Mark chapter 14, the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is the testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Is this your claim? You're the Christ and you're the son of God. And now Paul stands before a synagogue and he's not only saying and claiming he's the Christ and he's the Son of God, it says he's proving it. Proving it how? Well, from the Scriptures. The uncontested Scriptures of everyone gathered there together in the synagogue. And this blew their minds. Not only his rhetorical abilities, they're they're still in flux, but his 180. How is it that this guy is here talking about Jesus this way? Because he didn't just redirect all the old human zeal to something new. No, he's got a whole new source of boldness and courage. And now by the power of the Spirit, he's actually standing up in a synagogue proclaiming the very same blasphemy that got Stephen stoned to death, that got Jesus hung on a cross, the same blasphemy that initially caused Paul himself to fly into a rage, and now he's proclaiming it. And the people were therefore confounded that word in the Greek, it always makes me think of people with their, their jaw hanging wide open, mouths agape, shocked that he is now using the scriptures to show that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you have to put yourself in their shoes to understand just how aghast they would be. They were expecting him, right? There was going to be a rather famous up-and-coming guest speaker coming soon. He's kind of a one-issue guy. You've had those guest speakers sometimes, right? He's going to come in. He's going to talk about this thing, the danger of this Jesus movement. It's going to be exciting. And yet he shows up, and what he says is the opposite. It would be like when when Noah Philippiat came a few weeks ago, and he talked about uh, purity and and lust and Internet accountability and and how the church can help people struggling with pornography. What if he would have come up to the pulpit and said, you know, guys, I don't think porn's that bad. End of the day. It's all right. I mean, look at whatever you want. Who are you hurting? We would all say, is this not the guy who was supposed to come here and talk about biblical concepts of purity? It also makes me think of Acts chapter 3. After Peter has healed this man who for years had been begging, crippled at the temple gate called Beautiful. And it says they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They're filled with wonder and amazement. What has happened to Saul? I'm sure some probably thought in the back of their mind, oh, I see what they're doing. This is a a clever ruse. He gets their trust. He's going to invite them all to some get-together for Christians and slap the chains on them, take them away. And yet that didn't happen. As he went from synagogue to synagogue, they kept letting him speak and he kept proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing the cost, not only did Paul know exactly what he was getting into, he knew exactly the elements of what he was saying were offensive. Because he knew exactly what caused him to start persecuting the church. He knew exactly what he had said to the chief priests that made them draw up papers that said, yeah, here's the authority to go drag people around in chains. He knew what he could tone down to make this gospel acceptable to the culture. But he didn't modify it, not one bit. He proclaimed Jesus as Lord and Christ, the Son of God and the Messiah, 
who came to bear the sin of the world. He doesn't say, well, this Jesus was a good teacher. You're misunderstanding him. In fact, according to C.S. Lewis, that is the one thing we must not say. One of my favorite quotes from Clive. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You know what a poached egg is, right? It's like what comes on uh, Eggs Benedict. Whoa, we've got no problem naming Eggs Benedict. And maybe it's because they're so mushy and they just move back and forth so freely and innocently. The, 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 the poached egg moves easily from one side to the other. Well, that soft egg, that's, that's often, I think, how we soften the gospel. And we mustn't do it. Jesus is not just another great religious figure among others. Confucius, Muhammad, Gandhi, Buddha, Jesus. He can't be because he claimed to be God in the flesh. And as Lewis reminds us, that means he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Paul continues, and as he continues, notice this, it's as he is actually exercising the gifts that the gifts get stronger. He doesn't sit back on his heels and say, okay, I'm going to wait until I power up, and then I'm going to launch my ministry. No, he's preaching. He's speaking in the synagogues. He's reasoning. He's proving from the scriptures and he is being made more powerful. There's sort of bookends here. In verse 19, after three days of no food and no water, answering, I think, to the three days of Christ in the tomb, when the, the, the scales come off his eyes, he stands up, he eats, and he is strengthened in body. And then as he goes out preaching, we're told that he is strengthened, or it's a different Greek word, perhaps it should be empowered, a word that's kind of lost its punch in our society, but the Greek simply says in and to make powerful. He's, he's powered within. His God-given supernatural ability to reason with the Jews in the synagogues and the Greeks and their forums and the barbarians on the street, God is building it as he exercises it. He's building up the gifts in him as the chosen vessel to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And God continues to build him, to work in him. We see here, here's this, this gap that Luke leaves, and no one knows quite why he does it. Verse 23, we read, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Many days sounds like what? Maybe a few weeks, a couple months. It's actually got to be three years. Why? Because in Galatians 1, we see just this. We, we see... I did not go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. In Acts, the next thing that happens is he goes to Jerusalem. So there was three years in there where he goes to Arabia and receives not from men, but from God, his gospel in its fullness, in its completion. We see he's empowered by that time too, time with God. Time meditating on Scripture. Time in prayer. God continues to build. And he's not going down into the Arabian Peninsula, as you might think of Arabia today, but this is called Nabatea. It would have been northeast of the Dead Sea, in the neighborhood of Damascus. And we see that as he does this, he's not only meditating on the Scripture, rethinking everything he's ever known about the Messiah in light of who Jesus is, but he must have been ministering as well. 
Because we see in 2 Corinthians that the king of Nabatea is also trying to kill him. So the, the old Saul, he's out here, he's making enemies when the, he at one point had been trying to climb the ladder and make friends. He's ministering in the name of Jesus when at one point he wanted to destroy the whole, the whole enterprise of the Christians. And then we see a, a very stark uh, contrast here in these verses 23 through 25. And I think we're going to leave the remainder of the chapter for next time. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I don't know about you, but I read this and I immediately see the flannel graph that we had at Essexville Baptist of Paul in the basket going down. And the old Paul would have been humiliated by this. This isn't even like the Indiana Jones escape. This is Marion getting in a basket and dragged away. He loved his high position. He loved his righteousness. He loved the fact that he was the one at whose feet the people laid their coats when they stoned Stephen to death. And now here he is being lowered down in a basket, about to just run away from his enemies. How embarrassing. You can almost hear him muttering, right? Don't tell Gamaliel about this. I'd never live it down. And yet, in 2 Corinthians 11, he boasts about it. Remember, we looked closely at this uh, May of last year when we were looking through 2 Corinthians. In, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30 and following, If I must boast, he says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. At Damascus, the governor under King Itus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Paul boasts in that rather than being humiliated. His strength is in the fact that he's weak and helpless, but for Christ doing something on his behalf, but for Christ at work in him. I see in this a similarity to the two spies being lowered out of Jericho from the prostitute's room. But Saul, he, he escapes and he, he manages to, to make a large number of very powerful enemies in very short order. Priests and kings and governors, and we see God's big plan for his ministry unfolding in the building resistance to what he's doing. 1 Corinthians 16, he says, There is a wide door for effective work, and it has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. A wide open door to ministry doesn't look like nothing resisting you. doesn't look like no one trying to shut you down. It often looks like a lot of resistance. It looks like the enemy is scrambling and freaking out, saying, How can I keep this from happening? Paul recognized that there would be suffering, and it's beginning here. Paul was well on his way before his conversion to being the chief of the Pharisees, the greatest of all the righteous teachers of his day. And a short time later, he writes, this is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. He's not going to be the greatest Pharisee. He's not going to be the greatest man. He's going to say, I am the greatest sinner that's me. But Christ is a greater Savior. And that is the good news that Paul brought to the synagogues. That is the good news that we have. And that is the good news 
that we must proclaim to the world. Don't wait. Don't wait until you've proven yourself to be all but perfect so that your testimony can't shine any doubt that you are righteous. Don't wait until you have that perfect opportunity where you're not going to rub anyone the wrong way and everyone's going to be on board. We must open our mouths as Paul did, proclaim the gospel, knowing the cost, knowing that the call to follow Jesus is a call to pick up a cross and follow him. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Paul gives us, even from his conversion, an example of zeal, of wanting to proclaim your truth to the world, to those who are lost, to those who need to hear what Jesus has done for us. The Lord, he didn't wait. We're thankful that he did take time to prepare for his worldwide mission, but Lord, we're thankful that he didn't silence himself, that he didn't limit what you might do through him, but that he was willing to be that chosen vessel to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into synagogues, to Jews, out into temples, to Greeks, out into the street, out anywhere he could, anywhere anyone would listen. Lord, may we too be willing to make disciples of all nations. Amen.